Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I love introducing you to people who are committed to working on their own development and to helping others become the best version of themselves. That's also a key focus of my company, Grow Strong Leaders. We publish software tools and books for improving the way people connect with each other at work, and you can find us at growstrongleaders.com. I am so excited to welcome as my guest today, John Hunter. Welcome, John. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you for having me. Well, I am so excited about our conversation because I know the quality of thoughts you have and ideas you have to share with my audience. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Chris Doris, our mutual friend and colleague who introduced us, and I'm grateful to him for this connection because I've so enjoyed talking with you. And before I jump into the questions I have for you today, let me introduce you in a more formal way to my audience. John is a global business leader with expertise in building and growing world-class organizations. He's held positions like chief revenue officer and senior vice president of sales in various enterprise software companies over the past 25 years. And now, I love this, he is passionate about developing the next generation of leaders. And he started his Hunter X podcast to share insights from all of his years of experience. And we're going to explore some of his favorite topics in our conversation today. John, as we get started, I would love for you to you know, introduce your, uh, yourself to my audience by talking about your journey. You know, where did you start from before you became a senior executive in these enterprise software companies? Yeah, great, Meredith. Thank you so much. Yeah, even listening to you read that off sometimes is, um, you know, uh, startling to me. Um, it seems like just yesterday I was getting myself out of Arizona State University. I started up at NAU. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I had a really smart brother that went to Phillips Exeter Academy. My sister did really well, went to uh, Bowdoin and, and Harvard. And so I was the different kid. I was the one. I played football. I played sports. I had a really intellectual mom and dad keeping an eye on me to get me through school. It didn't come easy to me. Um, but the key was I had, I had a nurturing environment and I had intellectual depth around me that made me curious to always want to learn but also play to my strengths, which were clearly becoming more social, more business. You know, I look back on it now, I think having a paper route at uh, 10 years old, when you're asking your neighbors for money once a month, probably had an impact on a lot of us for those out there who remember having a paper route. So I think that's the core of kind of growing up in Phoenix, being this social athletic guy, like being on a team, played a little bit of sports. Um, you know, went to NAU, didn't do great there, but I was in a fraternity. So I learned a little bit about how to you know, start leadership and being a part of something bigger than myself. Got a degree in justice studies at ASU, 
a lot of people ask me about that. And uh, the key for me was my father's guidance of not treating my university time as a vocational, you know, get a job, but more learn about difficult subjects, learn how to think critically. And I'm really thankful for that. And from there, I basically stumbled into a company called Mastering Computers. Um, I've written about this as well. I was selling over the phone. Um, I was miserable because I could not sit still. But people around me started saying things like they were listening to the words I was using, my retorts, my euphemisms, and they were writing them down. And we would go to lunch and they'd say, hey, John Hunter, you know, I like that, that retort you used today. And I was like, what? That was silly. And they said, no, it really works. And therefore, I started learning, maybe I have something, ability here. And so I started exploring it more. I ended up faxing my resume to a company called Computer Associates. I get the job. Long story long here, Meredith. But I, I get this interview. This woman um, interviews me for about a half an hour, realizes I don't know what I'm talking about. She wants to throw me out of there. I say, you got to let me come back and do this right. My father and I created a presentation called Eat What You Kill, which we discerned was the mindset of the founder of, of Computer Associates, Charles Wong, you know, a non-entitled environment. And um, I, I gave that presentation. I got the job and I was there for 18 uh, really creative years. And so, um, and I'll talk more about that, but that's kind of the genesis of the John Hunter story. Mm -hmm. And then you went on to, I guess, even within your 18 years there, you moved up into higher levels of responsibility. And yep. there's so much I know that you uh, learned during those years of experience. I want to just jump for a moment to your podcast and explain what the title means, Hunter X podcast. Well, Hunter X came in a little bit of a metaphor for Hunter, which is in, in a broader sense of life. Let's not wait. Let's not farm. Let's not um, be scared or fearful. Why not lean in on and, and hunt for what we want, set goals, go after them, be, um, you know, being a positive version of the word, put it into action. And X to me was the different ways I learn and I think people learn. So I took it a little bit from a TEDx perspective. You know, it can be a video, it could be a movie clip, it could be a soundbite that, that may be a word of a concept you've heard before, but we're going to go put it in maybe a different way to digest it. So you go, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I can take action on this. So it's just these different types of ways of learning centered around a word that we, that hopefully we all can think about as let's go get it for what we want in life. And I want to highly recommend to my listeners to subscribe to your podcast because you take this approach of, you know, eight to 12 minutes in length, which is very easy to, you know, squeeze into your day. And you, you just hit on some really important points. The other thing that I have enjoyed is your use of, of metaphors. And one of the most important ones is the way you talk about being um, half monk, half hit man or hit woman. And so talk a little bit about what you mean by that and where that came from. Yeah. Well, remember I mentioned Hunter X and movies and, and, mo and sometimes song lyrics. I've just found if I can create a hook into your heart, into your brain, when I'm leading. So remember at CA, at one point, I got up to leading about 1,500 people. 
So your goal is to try to get to the masses, get, get them their hearts and minds around an idea, a new way of learning something. And I found using these metaphors and movie clips with a power messaging, keep it simple, three takeaways, maybe even two. So that's the premise on why metaphors. It's just, I found, and often thought it was just sales related people that thought this way, but now I'm learning a lot of communities like to learn this way. Um, so make it available to all kinds of different um, industries, et cetera. Um, and that particular one really hit me because it was a James Bond quote in Quantum of Solace. When James Bond is chasing a bad guy, I'll make, make this short, he ends up shooting a low-level bad guy and he goes back to meet his boss, um, M, the woman, and she basically lets him have it. And she then reads him basically this leadership principle that um, uh, ego and self-awareness don't go hand in hand. And she's trying to teach him that shooting a low-level bad guy is not what we were about. We needed to follow him, capture him, and lead us to a more strategic outcome. And he looks at her and says, you want me to become half monk and half hitman. And, And she basically says, I knew it was too early to promote you. Any thug can kill. And I thought about that as my life and my career there was a time when you had to learn that it was not just about winning. It was not just about selling. It wasn't about getting the numbers. It was about thinking and taking action and finding that right balance in our lives when it comes to goal setting, get the job done, don't overthink it, be forward, be direct, be hands-on, and then read the book, take a step back, think you know, strategically, um, and finding that balance is what I feel is the crux for that next level of leadership positions out in the world. Mm-hmm. That, that's, you know, I love the fact that you make it a, a very clear image and easy to remember. And thinking about you talking of the, going to the next level of leadership, one of the key things that you talk about holding people back from getting those promotions, for getting those responsibilities is this whole area of self-awareness. Why, why are so many leaders lacking in that? And, and how does it hold them back? What's the problem? Well, as you know, I did this, one of the podcasts was around, uh, you know, my boss calling me a maverick and, um, and, and, you know, really the shock and awe originally, first, first of all, I think it's emotional. I think it's embarrassing. It's hurtful. Um, that our best strengths are often our, our weakness to elevating and to growth. So I think a lot of it is built, as you know, I talk a lot about self-esteem, how you were raised, how you were um, complimented, how you were maybe judged or criticized growing up. It can really lead some people to having a hard time with those growth moments where so, you know, your boss comes to you and says, hey, look, we'd love what you did today, but it was a little too much. Or you get in big companies, they do the 360 degree surveys and you're reading these comments. You're going, oh my God, I call it getting your PhD and being an idiot. You just feel like an idiot. It's the growth and what separates the two is one community will take it and say, those people are are nonsense. It's not true. Look at my numbers. I'm right. The other person, and I, I tend to have both of this in the early days. The other community got good self-esteem, open-mindedness, goes home, thinks about it and goes, wow, um, I didn't realize I was being too much of me that way. And can you just tune it a little bit 
and not lose yourself, not lose your identity. And that's where the communities, I think, split from being, you know, defensive and righteous and embarrassed and been blaming. And then you go into, nope, I'm going to remain me. I'm just going to make a little bit of an adjustment. I'm going to then read and study and become, you know, more on top of how to remain self-aware as I grow as a leader. And I think that's where you see those folks really going in their careers somewhere in their mid thirties ish, you know, you can, you see it where they just start jumping leaps and bounds over others. Well, let's imagine for a minute that you're in a position where you are working with someone who's one of your direct reports that, you know, there's this blind spot they have. And so I know some of my other listeners, you know, our managers, our leaders, what are some ways that you recommend approaching someone so that the end result is they are more aware and yet the relationship remains intact? I'll give you a real life one. We'll, we'll call this person Jack. Um, I have a lot of Jacks in my business life so that you won't, no one will know. He, if he does listen though, he is so... He has grown so much from this that he would talk about it openly and share his story. But I was flying around managing a couple thousand people. I had an executive who had probably 300 people under his purview. One of the things we've learned in these leadership development classes, one of them is about power. And this is the one thing, one of many things I see missed, reading and understanding the different forms of power and how it can intimidate and affect your people. So I have an example where Jack was just missing power, missing how his behavior was impacting his three to 400 people. And it was brought to my attention from the great HR communities that are out there that have employee survey data that do skip level interviews and other techniques to kind of check in and say, hey, how is Jack behaving? How are his people really responding? Well, my, since he reported to me, that was given to me. And my job, as you've written so eloquently about, is now how do I get to him without fear, breaking him or driving him into a dark place? So I asked one simple question, Meredith. I said, Jack, how are you doing with your people? How are you doing with your team? Jack's response, I'm doing great. I said, Jack, how would you know? They tell me. Hmm. I said, Jack, you're a senior vice president. You fly around on the corporate jet. You're with the CEO all the time. You're with your name dropping bosses and other big, powerful names. Is it possible that those people are telling you things that you want to hear that are not truly how they feel? I never thought about that. Well, Jack, it happens to all of us. It's, it's how power works. A little bit of a morsel of education. And oh, by the way, here's some survey data. It's true. He went in, probably kicked the dog, you know, had a bad weekend, but came roaring back on Monday with what he called Jack 2.0. He brought his team in. He shared his data. He did an offsite retreat. And he had a miraculous um, evolution, I'll call it, with his team. It wasn't bad, Meredith. He wasn't doing anything unethical. He was just being a little too much of himself and didn't realize how power worked. That, though, that you can intimidate your people in a way you're, you're just not um, aware of. And I've seen unintended consequences being the number one issue I've seen with leaders is not when they intentionally hurt people, they unintentionally hurt it. 
And so that was just an example of being very, uh, for me, being calm, being thoughtful, knowing I wanted him on the team. I wanted him to be a better leader. I want to ask some questions in there, not just throw it at him and then get him to own it. And it was a great uh, success story. He's a great CEO right now, by the way, I'm in Silicon Valley. That's wonderful. I love so many aspects of that story. Your honesty with him, you're asking him questions and then his willingness to, you know, do that self-examination to evaluate that information and not just reject it out of hand. Because I think when we get our egos wrapped up, and that's one of the things that you talk about too, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, how does our ego create these issues for us and how do we work how do we become aware that our ego is interfering with our ability to hear and respond appropriately yeah i mean i I talk about it now like i you know i'm so self-aware and grounded and and balanced when i go back to the 28 year old version of me meredith there is no way you know i just i just come back to the self-esteem i come back to the parents fundamental you know foundation they built that can, you know, bend, but not break when it comes to growing up in our twenties, you know, when we're just full of energy and confidence and ego, and it can take you only so far, you know, do you have enough empathy, self-awareness and self-control to then take the learnings and just get wiser and wiser with not losing the energy. It sounds like it's a no brainer now for anyone that's listening, but I was there. If you're listening in your twenties, I get it. It's going to be a journey and um, and don't beat yourself up. You'll get there. Well, interestingly, you mentioned self-esteem because one of the things you had mentioned in your, and I think it was our very first conversation, you said the number one thing you looked for when you were hiring was self-esteem. And so I would love for you to talk about why was that the number one thing that you were looking for? And how did you assess if somebody had a strong sense of self? Well, first of all, I really learned it and got reinforced from one of my trainers, uh, Mac Newton, who's a, this great Taekwondo trainer. A lot of people go to Mac in Phoenix for physical and mental training. And Mac's, you know, really his knowledge is for high performers. So when you see this guy who's training the world's top athletes, and he's not, he's not really only talking about what you're eating and what you're drinking and how many mountain climbers can you do. He's talking about your mental makeup because you just can't be a repetitive, consistent performer if you have low self-esteem. So the minute I understood where that was coming from and how important it was, it shifted my focus and my desire to learn more about self-esteem. So it's as simple as that if you want to be a consistent high performer in any industry, you got to like yourself. You got to surround yourself with people that have similar values and you've got to do the things in your life that you know make you like yourself more and more and more. So it gets you more grounded around your values, um, grounded around a word like integrity. You've got to do what you say you're going to do. You've got to learn to say no. And you get, and then it makes for a great leadership ability because you can make a mistake, you could fail and almost, you know, smile a little bit. And that's not the end of the world. You know, your job doesn't represent who you are. And I think in the early days, if you looked at me, that was kind of my bravado, maybe too much. So like I was, I used to say I'm up or out, 
right? I just don't care. You know, I'm not going to all these people are, oh my God, it's your career, your title. And, and what if they fire you? Who cares? Then they fire me. So let me just be cautious here. That was probably too much of that at the time. But at the core of it, you knew where I was going with it, which was, hey, let's go be great. And let's not get caught up in really our jobs becoming our identity. And that is based on your ability to look in the mirror every single morning, look and go, man, I really like that person. And if we can get there, those people can be self-aware. They can do some of these, use these tools. They can have a bad day with a boss and not overly rotate on it and throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so you can look at people who, you know, have self-deprecating humor. You can look at people who who show vulnerability. You can look at people's LinkedIn and see that they worked through college and that they uh, put themselves out there in different, tried new things um, to go look for folks, especially when you interview with them. And you see the conversations flow more naturally, they're more relaxed and um, more open about what they've done right and what they've done not right. And that can be a, a, a pattern to look for self-esteem. I'm curious, what uh, what's your definition of self-esteem and how do you distinguish that from self-confidence? Um, well, self-esteem really simply is the degree in which you like yourself. That's how I view it. Um, I'm not a medical, you know, definition, but it's really is your, 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 your ability to like yourself and self-confidence to me um, is a little bit different, plays off of people with high self-esteem, but a lot of times the self-confidence can get wrapped up in uh, competitiveness and, you know, knowledge base and um, winning where it's self-esteem, I'm looking for, um, that will get there, there'll be ability, but it's because I'm so comfortable in who I am that not only will I be confident, but I'm also going to be patient. I'm not going to talk as much. I'm going to be more thoughtful. I may go read. I may go learn differently. I may go take on extra projects um, because I've got this piece of who I am. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that doesn't come across as confidence, although they are the utmost confident people because in their core, they're not trying to be somebody they're not. And that to me is what I like to see out of myself, my kids and people around me when mm-hmm. I work. That's great. I, I like that <clears throat> distinction a lot. And, you know, one of the other things I was thinking about in listening to themes through your your podcast, you emphasize the importance of a leader creating a safe space or safety as a way of building trust. And I agree so much with that position. I would like you to talk a little bit about, especially if you're in a new situation or a new position, what do you do to, uh, what can a leader do to help people feel safe about being honest and to develop trust, trust as quickly as possible, because that's so important as a basis for high performance. Well, there's so much there. I mean, it's, 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 um, you know, I'll give you a a few morsels. One thing I'll, I'll go back to this monk hitman concept. There is a monk concept I would put in the monk category by the Jahari window. It's a psychological term. I'm certainly not an expert on it. But it's an example of what we were 
um, exposed to in one of our leadership development programs. And it's one way to build trust and to build safety. You can use it to build team building exercises. You can use it to do big all hands talks. But the, for me, the basic uh, start of that was to go through your life, to look what made you, you, and then to use some of it, good and bad, and then to use some of that to share it vulnerably with people around you. Um, so I tell people all the time that, you know, this, uh, the story about being called a maverick. Um, I got fired in my first job at CA. I talk about my father and how, you know, my dad was a priest. My mom was a nun and how I had these great parents. I sold waterbeds in South Florida to the Cubano community in college. And you can tell in the beginning when you're building safety, you got to have the empathy to know John Hunter showing up on day one. And the first things out of there, they're thinking is, do I trust this guy? Is he here to help me? Is he here to fire me? And now we know Meredith and John Hunter know, hey, we're here to help you. They don't know that. So if you can just get that in your head as a listener, I got a new team. Why wouldn't they think positively about everything? I go to my LinkedIn and look at everything I've accomplished. It just doesn't work that way. So studying on things like the Jahari window just made me more thoughtful of deploying more proactive techniques around being vulnerable, asking good questions. For example, don't try to solve anything in those first few weeks. Just don't do it. It would sound crazy to people. Well, I have the answer. You're struggling. It's week three. The community around you doesn't want you to solve it. They want to know, are you going to listen to them? Or are you going to be that guy who has all the answers? So that's an example. And I'm now coined the term becoming a cultural anthropologist because I want to, I want people to think about me going in like digging up dinosaur barns. I'm, I'm like, I'm poking around, I'm meeting people, I'm listening. And what am I doing? I'm asking what happened here? Who are you? What have you been through? Safety, safety, vulnerability. Hey, I've been through that. I failed before. I had successes before knowing their names, understanding what they've been through, feeding that back to them. You'll see the safety just go from a net, you know, a two to a four to a six. Next thing you know, your all hands calls or your other communication techniques are starting to show them giving you open, fluid, vulnerable feedback. Now you know you're on to something. And if you can just deploy some of these tactics, refrain from solving things for people, pay attention to the small things of their lives. Um, you get that safety built and then you can tell them some pretty direct things because they know you're not there to hurt them. You're there to make them better. That's when you just get explosive productivity and high-performing teams. Mm. Excellent. I hope people are taking notes about that. I think it's, it's so wise. And I, I remember you telling me too, um, cause we've talked about this your emotional intelligence scores are always very high when you take those different assessments. And I just think that's remarkable, not that it's necessarily rare, but the fact that you take pride in that because some folks, as, as you've even mentioned to me, see that as, as not necessarily a strength. And yeah. So yeah. talk a little bit about why that you feel that is such a strength for you. Well, look, um, 
you know, I think probably bias one, you have them. Therefore, you know, um, you know, I've always felt a little bit imposter syndrome and being around high IQ people my whole life. You know, my dad was a big time IQ guy, my brother and sister. So, you know, I think the EQ for me, um, almost out of necessity, having a framework of learning, having some DNA, that score has gotten higher over the years. And I've seen these teams like the Jack example, perform better by approaching them with this EQ. I mean, the Jack example is a great example. I had to have some safety with him or I would have been another guy throwing HR data at him, telling him he's an idiot and I'm going to fire him. And he would have left the company and we wouldn't have achieved the goals of the company. And so that was a real life example of what of deploying EQ more and more and more. So it's, think about it, self-control, it's empathy and it's self-awareness which I don't know if most people even know what EQ is. So once you think about those three attributes, who wouldn't want to be empathetic? What is it like to feel like I know what you're going through? Who doesn't want to have some ability to be self-controlled and not let your emotions and your neocortex go to a 10 when we all know that's when you're at your least intelligence. If you study these topics, you learn Emotion leads to low-grade intelligence decision-making. So, of course, self-control becomes more attractive. And then self-awareness, right? How do you know you're being too much of you? And so, you know, you're being just, there's being right in this world, there's being dead right. And I think knowing when you're being dead right and too much of you, these three things combined with, you know, with other business objective just makes you a better leader um, one last thing I'll say in these, in these EQ conversations, you start hearing from other people that don't report to you that you're attractive, that you're helpful, that you're translating to them, you're influence, you become a better influencer, which then comes around to serve your career because you get all kinds of people going, boy, Mary or Joey or John, I really like how they handled that problem. They were really thoughtful, gracious and direct, and it makes you more attractive to people outside of your own work preview, purview, which a lot of people don't always see that benefit. And Mm -hmm. it's a big one. So I want to ask you about a situation I know you have faced yourself, and I'm sure others have. And that is, when you have this high EQ, and you're operating from these three core areas that you just described, and yet other parts of the culture don't support that, uh, don't necessarily believe that. They're more fear-based in the way they approach motivating, quote, motivating people. What are some strategies or, or approaches that can help someone who sees that difference in values or, or the potential conflict? Well, um, I think to break it into two categories, I think there are those that are deploying fear um, and don't know they are. And, and that is something worth investing in and talking about it. There are those that are deploying fear and um, just don't know there's a better way. They've grown up on it. I saw a really great um, post the other day about toxic work environments and it's from a very famous psychologist. And, and what I thought about was some of my early years where I did, it was pretty toxic in some of those early CA days. I didn't know any better. I just thought everybody's careers were like mine. 
And, you know, matter of fact, I'll give you a tangible example. I had a boss's boss. My boss's boss sent me an email on a Friday at two in the morning because I left my computer on and he could tell my computer was on. And he said, I knew I could count on you. So my that just affirmed in me as a young person, outwork your problems. That's how you get ahead here. Work the weekend, work till two in the morning. And it wasn't until I had a coach in my life who basically said, as I became like a second line manager, said, you know, you're going to burn out. It doesn't, it just doesn't work. And I started going down the pathway of learning more about, you know, working smarter, learning how to delegate, surrounding yourself with better people. But, you know, it's, I, I, the one thing I wanted to give you there is that, you know, some people may not know that there's, you have options. And that third category is, yeah, I am using fear. I refuse to use anything other because I don't trust people. I believe those leaders, those communities, those businesses, you should avoid them. You, you know, just to be blunt, you just, you, you've done your homework. You've seen their, their strategy. Yeah. We're going to churn the bottom 30%. We're going to put two in the box on a, on a position spec, for example. I mean, think about two in the box, which is a formal business strategy. I'm going to give two people the same job, let them fight it out. And it'll be better for productivity, which to me is just mind blowing and and dark and ugly and going to lead you to be a bad mother, a bad father, a bad everything. And I want no part of that. Holding people accountable sometimes gets confused that, hey, we're going to be positive. We're going to be driving productivity the right way. We want to hold each other accountable. That's just fine. There's nothing wrong with a meritocracy and accountability. But, you know, the first one is hey, get to those leaders and see if they know what they're doing. Are they contributing to an unintended consequence? Oh, I sent you a note on Friday just asking about how projects going. This is a real life example where we see, I've saw my leaders were giving off little check emails on Fridays where they didn't think anything of it. And those employees were taking it as a challenge to go work the weekend on a project. So this was an example where we had them all read Simon Sinek's Leaders Eat Last. We had them get educated on the dopamine, the cortisol, and the chemicals in the brain. And we had them realize that these little mishaps in your email, your texting, could be driving a fear-based result unintended. Mm-hmm. And we had managers, Meredith, all over the world going, oh, my God, I had no idea, Mary, that you were taking that literally and telling your kids, I'm not going to go spend to the park with you because John Hunter told me to go, you know, he asked me how a project's going Friday at 4.30. So that in those examples, you know, we can bring up these topics to those leaders. We can do meetings with them. We can say, hey, you know, how are you guys thinking about running this company or this division? Mm-hmm. And sometimes get educated that these things are happening and have a really cool breakthrough of doing it differently. Mm-hmm. I think those distinctions you just made are really important. And that's where someone I think needs to take a really honest look at not hoping, you know, that uh, the leadership will, will suddenly see the light if in fact, they fall into that third category that you were describing, where they deeply believe this is how to get the most out of people, when in fact, it burns them out and you have that churn that you talked about. So I 
I really like your your responses there. I want to ask you uh, again about this concept of feedback because it's so critical. So many times people hesitate to give feedback. And yet one of your uh, podcast episodes, you talked about this Swiss German boss that you had when you were younger yeah. and the impact his feedback had on you. And, and I think it was a long-term impact because here you are talking about it many years Absolutely. later. Describe that situation. What was it he said that got your okay. attention? Well, it's important because there's elements here of safety that we, that will come out in this, even if it was unintended or unknown by me at the time. So here I am in my mid, late 20s, maybe. I'm a sales manager. My numbers are great. That's important. Because one, it gives me this added confidence and overconfidence and overzealousness that was in my DNA. I'm moving fast. I'm breaking China. My numbers are great. So it just made me even more unself-aware. We get a new boss. We worked in these teams. So I had counterparts that had to be with me and my team all the time. Uh, sometimes I call that a matrix model where there's you know different people with you. Um, and I just felt because the numbers were great and people would just tell you feedback if you were bothering them or if you were, you know, these people are my friends. These people are, you know, I have years with them. And then I get this Swiss German boss with an MBA. And that's also important to note. So he has a very formal approach. He takes over the job and he sits in a conference room with a laptop and he with a spreadsheet and he's asking people immediately about everybody and taking copious notes. We had never seen anything like that before. So by the time it gets to me, it was near the end. And he says, ah, you know, you were John the Hunter. I always play around with this German accent. It makes everyone laughs at it. He said, how do you say, remember, no, he's struggling with his English. So, so now, and this is, a, this is help, this is important for safety. He's not trying to make fun of me. He's not trying to put me down, but he kind of does. He says, you are John the Hunter, snapping fingers. How do you say, because his English wasn't great, how do you say you are uh, a maverick? You are uh, not many people like you. You are a bull in a china shop. So these are the three comments he makes to my face with this laptop out with all of these notes about me from my peers. And my first instinct was I wanted to come across the table and grab him. The second feeling because of my self-esteem and my makeup was embarrassment. So, you know, maybe it's the seven stages of grief are happening to me immediately in like 17, you know, like in a minute and a half. Like, oh, my God, no, you can't say that about me. Look at me. I'm John Hunter. Look at my numbers. But because my numbers were good, I knew he wasn't there to fire me. That was important, that it wasn't about performance. So deep down, I knew the guy wasn't trying to usher me out the door. They needed the revenue. I knew he had been asking everybody in a very methodical format. So I knew he wasn't making it up. And I knew he was new. And he was Europe, European. So I knew there were, don't hinge too much on the words, which I learned later. But at first I had the anger. Then I had the embarrassment. Then I had pure sadness. Like, what an idiot. What have I been doing? Because I had this vision of sitting with these people, being too much of myself, and them just taking it and talking probably amongst themselves. Like, God, can you believe John today? Oh, 
golly. And they couldn't tell me that to my face meant I must be hard to give feedback to. Went back, drove home, saw a mentor of mine. He said, what happened? I said, my boss, I think just called me a cow. That can't be good. And he said, do you even know what a maverick is? And he tells me a maverick is a few cattle in a herd that will walk into a storm when a lot of the cattle will just sit in a storm and sometimes become vulnerable or maybe even fall ill. And he said, so there's, there's actually a goodness to being a maverick. You had a self-aware moment, learn from it, but do not stop being who you are. And I think that was the critical advice right in the moment that led me just just let it go off, but fundamentally change and slow down a little bit when I was running hot. I just ran a little bit less hot when I was hot, but I didn't let it just throw, you know, my confidence out the window. And when I post that and when I teach that to my teams, um, I get a good response. Translates. Mm -hmm. There's so many takeaways there for someone who you know, may not be used to getting feedback either, or when they get it, there could be a tendency to either deny it, kind of go one of two extremes, deny it and discount the person who's giving it or the people that are giving it, or to start beating themselves up about it and, and drawing conclusions that aren't accurate about their capabilities and, and their value. And so the fact that you had a mentor to go to afterwards to process it, I think was an important aspect of your learning. And it suggests to me that that's an important element for everyone to have. No question. Um, yeah. Yeah. The mentorship, the, um, the ability to just, you know, breathe, you know, you see this in these reviews and these feedbacks. I mean, it, there's a book, book out there, Crucial Conversations. It talks about the heart rate. I mean, these are emotional human beings telling each other things that we would think at the time are the end of the world. You know, the business, think about it at the time, my business was everything to me. Being successful, you know, um, I think we just sometimes in, in, in a lot of your work really addresses it, I think is giving tools and techniques to take a lot of that emotion out, which is what Andre, Andre was doing in his formally trained process. And that is where I see a lot of the breakdown is just the emotions run high. The person giving the feedback is not trained how to give it. The people receiving it are not trained how to receive it. There's been safety broken already around the way. We've already fired people for the wrong reasons. We've laid people off. Therefore, that fear gets out there and you, you can really go down a dark, a dark slope. And I think mm -hmm. that people can just keep an eye on your heart rate, keep it calm, do the work, prepare, be prepared when you're giving that review, make sure that safety is there, be positive about it. Um, it'll make a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a word that came to mind here as I'm listening to you in terms of managing that heart rate. And it's something I didn't know about years ago either. And this is the idea of staying curious and simply saying, okay, here's some information I didn't know, as opposed to taking it as a judgment about yourself and your value, but simply being curious about, oh, I didn't realize that and looking to learn more uh, so that you don't shut people off when they're trying to tell you something important. 
about your lack of self-awareness in a particular area. You know, John, I just realized we're, it's important for us to wrap up here shortly. We could talk for hours, I know. Is there any other thing that we haven't touched on that you think would be an important um, tip or insight to share with my listeners about their own growth as a leader or in developing other leaders? Um, I just, you know, kind of wrapping up this, this particular segment, I just think the, the, the thing I wrote down here that you hear a lot that maybe the listeners can keep an eye on is when you're in that feedback loop, I'll, I'll hear this from leaders that just need to continue to work on their game. And just for some reason, um, they're being pressured from somebody. I've always been curious by this, you know, Bob, you're doing great you know, you're going, you're, you're close, but you're not there yet. And in this, this, this urge, sense of urgency and immediacy gene that's out there, like we all need to be king. This is my metaphor for it. Everyone wants to be king now. And when you, if we can just, and then you'll often hear them talk about some, it's political here. So the thing I would just leave you with, and this is why I started with self-esteem, self-esteem allows you to be curious. Self-esteem allows you to take the feedback, go, yeah, maybe this feedback is, is helpful, but maybe it's not. And you can then let it go or you can use it. And is it, is it political in these environments, guys? Of course it is. Really great book out there called Leaders, Leadership on the Line. Talks about leader, the word politic is not a negative or a positive term. It's a neutral term. And we, no one goes through life alone. And if you just maybe conclude on that, that these are all people businesses. We got to go through life together and spend some time understanding how we affect each other. I think you're going to have a great next review and you're going to go further in your career. That's wonderful. John Hunter, what a lot of wisdom you have shared with us today. Thank you so much. Would you please let folks know how they can connect with you, how they can learn more about you and your wonderful Hunter X podcast? Sure. Anyone love to have you listen, give me feedback, send me a note, www.hunterxlife.com. And you understand why I threw life in there, because this is about how not just selling, not just marketing. This is about leading our lives in a particular way that serves us at work, but also at home as parents. So again, www.hunterxlife.com. Love to hear from you and love to get your feedback. Thank you, John. Thank you for who you are in the world and all the ways that you are bringing your wisdom and knowledge and sharing it with so many people that, that need what you have. Thank you. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, Download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.